Praised be Jesus Christ, and peace be with you on this Friday of the third week in Lent, uh, one week since the last episode of this podcast, which is difficult to believe considering how much has changed in such a short amount of time. I'm speaking to you today from Roseburg, Oregon, uh, very different from my usual location, but uh, St. Patrick's is actually shut down for the remainder of the academic year, considering uh, all the effects of the coronavirus pandemic and uh, it was by order of the local health officer in uh, San Mateo County that the seminary, well in fact uh, all, all, all public gatherings of any size were prohibited. Uh, regulation which came to us a little bit earlier than it did to the rest of the world but now I think is pretty much uniform across all the United States. So uh, we were one of the last institutions to close down in the area. Um, about a week before us, Stanford closed down, and a number of other universities were, were quickly following suit. But uh, we were keeping up full steam ahead for at least a, a few more days than everyone else. And then, um, you know, it, it came as a bit of a surprise to us, um, living in our, in our semi-cloistered lifestyle in the seminary. But uh, on Monday night of this past week, our rector gathered us all together for a meeting of the whole student body. He said, this is probably the hardest rector's conference I've ever had to give. And uh, he announced to us that the seminary would be closing for the remainder of the academic year and that all of us would be sent home to our respective dioceses. Uh, and that was again on Monday night. And he announced that by Wednesday, we would all have to leave the seminary and go home. And so um, it's really been a whirlwind of a week uh, for all of us, I know. And uh, I just want you to know that I and my seminarian brothers have been sharing in, in the craziness with you <laughs> and uh, sharing in the struggle to you know, remain recollected and to make many acts of faith and to rely ever more deeply on the Lord in this time when so much seems to be thrown into chaos and, uh, and the anchors of our faith in many ways are being, are being shaken. You know, um, so I, I'm back here now in my own hometown where my mom lives and uh, it's in the Archdiocese of Portland um, where, you know, for which I'm studying as a seminarian but I've been away from here most of the last couple of years doing my studies down in the Bay Area. Uh, but I'm back here now within the borders of the diocese. And uh, like pretty much everywhere else, I think, in fact, maybe now every diocese in the United States, but we have canceled all public masses. Um, and of course, we have no choice but to, to comply with the health regulations laid out for us by the state, by the governor and by the Oregon Health Authority. Um, the same story as everywhere else right now. So uh, the Archbishop had to make the very, very difficult decision, which I know he made uh, with a, a grieving heart and the shedding of many tears, to cancel all public Masses until after Holy Week. Right now, um, the, the suspension goes until, I believe, April 14th, which is the Tuesday uh, after Easter Sunday. And so obviously a very, very difficult decision just as it was for our rector to make the decision to close down and to send us home. You know, um, the, last thing, the last thing we want to do is to give in to a spirit of fear or to panic 
Um, obviously, we don't want to suspend the good work that we're doing. And, you know, for, for the bishops of the world, um, none of them, obviously, want to cancel masses. Um, and no priest wants to, to be away from his people during this difficult time. And it's a time of a great suffering for the whole body of Christ. It's a time of particular suffering for priests and for those who are in the hierarchy. And I just want to call attention to that. Um, I've seen a lot of comments online recently. I haven't really heard this so much in person, but I guess that's because I haven't really been interacting with anybody <laughs> except for priests and my own family. But I've seen some of these comments online for people really um, you know, criticizing the bishops and saying, how dare you close down masses and you know we should be like the saints in the times of the plagues of old being near the people and providing for them being out amongst them and it's so difficult because that's what every good and holy priest wants to do and every bishop wants to do you know the the the, the desires of our heart are to be with the people and to celebrate these masses and to have you know extra processions and times of adoration and increase all of our works of devotion. Um, I'm walking on these quiet streets in Roseburg and it's pretty jarring by the way when a huge truck goes by. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a different environment than I'm used to recording in but it's okay. <laughs> it's so, uh, yeah, I mean that's the desires of the hearts of the clergy, uh, to be with the people um, and to, to celebrate the sacraments for them. But it's in charity um, and, and, and in prudence, the church has to do uh, what is truly best for the people. And, uh, you know, one, one guy I was talking to, we, we were talking about like, we're trying to, trying to speculate, when was the last time in, in human history that the church has ever not held public masses for Holy Week? And we concluded this might actually be the first time. I mean, we haven't done any research, but, you know, like uh, pr probably the last time that a, a major plague or pandemic like this was threatening the world, well, germ theory hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> and so, yeah, the church would go ahead and would multiply masses and do these things. But, you know, um, as our scientific knowledge has increased, so too has our responsibility to do what is best for the spiritual health of the people, yes, but also to try to preserve human life and to preserve human dignity and prevent those um, from suffering who would suffer needlessly. So we do have that burden of responsibility and because of that and also out of obedience to the civil authorities, all of our bishops have canceled the public masses during this time. Really tough decision. As I said, I know firsthand at least my own bishop has been agonizing over this and wept over the decision but it was one that that simply had to be made and so looking ahead um, right now in our diocese the plan is to have masses during Holy Week in private celebrated by the Archbishop at the Cathedral but the doors will be locked the people won't be allowed to come in because gatherings of over 10 people are no longer permitted by the state of Oregon so we'll have the Archbishop um, maybe one or two concelebrants and a handful of seminarians who'll be there to serve and you know serve the essential functions of the liturgy perhaps one cantor <laughs> so we're talking very bare bones uh, liturgical celebration right 
but it will be live streamed. It'll be <laughs> broadcast on the internet to those who are capable of receiving that, which is most everyone these days. And uh, that way those of the faithful in the archdiocese who are not allowed to come there will at least be able to participate and unite their prayers um, to ours. So that's what's going on for Holy Week. Um, the Archdiocese has published a list of parishes which are live streaming their masses on Sundays and some even uh, every day for the time being. So that at least is available to people. And uh, I've just been home now for one full day, but today I assisted for the first time in my life at a mass live streamed over the internet <laughs> from my friend Father John Boyle's parish in Cottage Grove, Oregon, Our Lady of Perpetual Help. He's live streaming Mass every day on Facebook Live. Uh, you can access it through their Facebook page. It's very easy to find. I think it's facebook.com slash OLPHCG, which is Our Lady of Perpetual Help, Cottage Grove. OLPHCG, in case you want to check it out, you know. So he'll stream uh, Masses every day, weekdays as well as Sundays. Um, tonight he live streamed the Stations of the Cross, which my mom and I gratefully participated in from home. Tomorrow, I think he will um, even live stream a holy hour of adoration before the morning Mass. So if you want to log on, you can even uh, adore the Eucharistic face of Jesus remotely <laughs> that way. So um, that's one way a lot of parishes are stepping up. As I said, the Archdiocese has a whole list. So if you don't want to um, log on to Father Boyle's parish, but you do want to go to Mass, all of his Masses are in the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite, the traditional Latin Masses. And in case you would like to go to Ordinary Phone Mass or something, you could go to our website of the Archdiocese. It's archdpdx.org slash live dash masses. So archdpdx.org slash live dash masses. And they have a list of, it's like around 10 or 12 parishes so far, I think, which are live streaming their masses, which you can check out there. And of course, um, if you don't live in the Archdiocese of Portland, well, pretty much all over the USA and probably all over the world, priests are, are doing this. Um, dioceses are doing this to stay close to the people and keep them close to the liturgy during this time of trial, which is what we all want. We really want to, I mean, we as a church, I mean, as, as speaking as the clergy, I mean, I'm not a priest yet, but <laughs> I think I can speak in this regard on behalf of all priests everywhere. We want to be close to the people. We want to bring Jesus to you. Um, you know, so priests are being pretty creative in trying to find ways to do that, as well as lay ministers. I saw just this week that the youth minister in my home parish here in Roseburg, she hosted an online youth group meeting for uh, like 14 or 15 of our, of our teens, and they all connected via Instagram Live, <laughs> so that's going on. Um, for my own seminary, you know, I mean, we finished the semester six weeks early, but we're not just going to sit on our laurels. Um, we're actually going to continue learning with online classes from now until the end of the year. And so we've got it all set up. We're, we're going to try it for the first time on Monday. It's probably going to be a bit rocky at first because none of us have done this before, right? <laughs> but uh, we're going to give it a try. We're going to have video conferencing for all of our classes through Google Meet. And um, we'll do our assignments online, and we will, uh, you know, probably have our examinations online, all this sort of thing. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's really 
in many ways it's a new world and it's going to take some adjustment and it's uh, come upon us unawares, you know, but um, we have to do our best to adjust to this new reality and to be flexible and uh, above all to be faithful, you know, and to remain just just rooted deeply in Jesus Christ, to be to have a confidence in his love for us, to know that God is treating us as sons and daughters throughout this crisis, and that he is very, very close to us. Because um, the temptation can be when, you know, we're, we're shaken out of our habits and we're deprived of things that are very good and that we love, we can begin to doubt and our faith can be shaken. And even for very devout Catholics, you know, who are used to going to daily mass, day in and day out, and going to the church to pray, making novenas and lighting candles. Now all of a sudden that's taken away from them. I mean, for that, that, they can really be in danger of having their faith swayed. So now, now is the time to make acts of faith, to make acts of hope and of love, and especially to make acts of spiritual communion. Assisting at these masses online can help with that, right? Because then you're able to unite yourself to the prayers of the priest. You're able to... Uh, to here and to observe all the familiar ritual actions of the Mass, which we love so much. And at the moment when you would receive Holy Communion in the Most Blessed Sacrament, you can make a prayer of spiritual communion, whereby you say, Jesus, I'm not able to receive you right now in the Blessed Eucharist, as you well know, but I desire to receive you into my soul with the same truth of your presence and with all the same ardor of love in my heart. I want to receive all those graces which you will to pour out on me. So God, I make myself present here to you in faith. Because God is not bound by his sacraments. That's an important point to remember. He, he loves the sacraments. He instituted them as the ordinary means of grace. But God is not bound to them. I mean, he's God. <laughs> it's, not as if, uh, it's not as if he is separated from us or far from us just because we can't get to Mass. God's not bound like that to a certain space. God is God. God can give himself to us at any time to, uh, to the fullest degree, to the greatest measure. And indeed, he wills to do so. He wills to give himself to us. And all the more in times of crisis, in times of trial, God desires to give himself to us ever more fully, ever more perfectly, to be present to us with all that he has and all that he is. And so it's going to require greater discipline for us and a greater, honestly, a greater force of will, um, and, and therefore a greater love and greater desire to stay close to him during this trial. Because uh, if we can't lean on our normal routines, then we have to establish new ones. And when we're stuck at home, sheltering in place with our family members and um, you know, in circumstances of greater distraction, usually it's more difficult to pray when we're at home than in, in church. It requires all the more effort from us to uh, remain faithful to our times of prayer, you know. But the effort is worth it because if we make ourselves present to God and remain attentive to His loving presence in our hearts, He will give Himself to us and He will give us that peace that surpasses all understanding, just as He has always promised. So, that's my little fervorino. That's uh, like a little sermon or a little uh, <laughs> good counsel, I guess. And of course, as is usually the case, my friends, I'm preaching to myself first. I said I've been home for one day 
and uh, it's been it's been good. You know, it's so good to be home. I'm home with my mom, and uh, but it is difficult. I can tell already. It's going to be difficult to maintain my times of prayer and the needed times of study to do my online classes. It's just harder when you're in an environment um, that's not. It's not your familiar place to do these things and where there's more distractions and more noise, and less privacy and, and less, um, less congenial circumstances for contemplation and study. <laughs> and so for, for those of you who might be in similar situations like seminarian brothers, one great thing that I've already found will be a big help to, to me <laughs> is, is an app you can download on your phone called Ambient Mixer. Let me just tell you, it is awesome, <laughs> and it's free, and what you can do is you just plug in your headphones and put them in your ears, and you go onto Ambient Mixer, and you can choose from an incredible variety of different soundscapes, which will then play, thus covering over any disturbing background noises in your immediate environment, which will be real helpful for study, and it's helpful also for prayer. You just got to find a good one that's not going to be also distracting, like um, you know, there's some like waterfall sounds which are good, but then some of them have like bird, like tropical birds inserted into them and like, or like monkeys chattering and strange things like that. Just find a good basic one, like a nice basic waterfall or the sound of rain or something that is peaceful and that won't distract you. It'll just kind of fade away into the background after a few minutes so you don't really notice it anymore. And it will um, smooth over <laughs> like the sounds of family members talking or chattering or the TV or phones ringing or whatever's going on in the background so that then you can enter more fully into prayer or give yourself over to study or whatever you have to do. Now, obviously, this time that we're spending at home with loved ones is also an invitation from the Lord. I really believe that. It's an invitation to be more loving, to be more present to those who we love, and uh, many of the distractions, you know, which keep us away from them have been stripped away. So it's really a time to give ourselves more fully um, in love. So, um, you know, ma uh, make use of this tool prudently and don't withdraw out of communion. Um, I think very often in my own past, uh, not to self-disclose excessively, but... <laughs> Uh, in early years when I was in seminary, I'd come home and I'd be so frustrated because I'd want to maintain all these things I was doing while I was in the seminary and I would pretty much just be angry and irritated because the circumstances were not good, you know, <laughs> to be able to do what I wanted to do. In a way, it was very narcissistic, um, spiritual narcissism, you know, good old uh, spiritual narcissism. So... So, you know, so very often I would, I would uh, like go outside or something and just like go off in a huff and try to make my mental prayer. And I'd wonder why my prayer was so bad <laughs> and why I didn't seem to enter deeply into contemplation and be able to just breathe deeply the air of God's life. And the answer is, which I see now, if you're going to pray, you're entering into communion with the God who is love. And so, if uh, just before prayer, you're angry at your family members or those you live with and you're marching off in righteous indignation to go and <laughs> make your acts of devotion or your contemplation or what have you. And you sit down to pray and your heart is all stirred up with anger and annoyance and grievances. Well, 
you're not going to be able to enter very fruitfully into the communion with the God who is love. Which is why in St. Matthew's Gospel, we get this great advice. If you're going to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, then uh, go and reconcile with him. Then go back and leave your gift at the altar. Really the same thing with prayer, contemplation. We have to be able to enter into it with a free spirit, which means, uh, I mean, I, I don't mean like a free spirit, like, uh, uh, I don't know, someone who's unrestrained by social norms or something. I mean, a free spirit as in you're not, you're not bound by grievances or by any feelings of anger or by unrestrained passions and things like that. You have to be at peace with yourself and with others. And you have to be, um, in the rest of your life, making a gift of yourself in love to your loved ones and those who you live with and so on. Just as in, in prayer, you're making a gift of yourself freely to God so that you can receive His free self-gift. Our whole life has to be in continuity, um, you know, with every other aspect. Gosh, it's really noisy out here. It's incredible. There's hardly anyone on the streets, but um, it's like every single vehicle that goes by is a diesel truck or something. <laughs> but anyway, so, so, so that's my little fervorino. Oh, and then, okay, so one more thing I want to add, um, just to give you a heads up. In the coming days and weeks, I'm going to try some new things with this podcast to be more available to you and to the people of God who, who are suffering at home without access to masses or to the sacraments. So basically right now, two things in addition to the normal weekly In Your Embrace podcast. I'm going to be doing each day a daily reflection on the gospel readings. Now, uh, because I'm assisting at Mass remotely in the extraordinary form with my friend Father John Boyle, like I said, it'll be on the Gospel for the Day in the traditional Latin Mass in the lectionary for the extraordinary form. So um, you can t take or leave it as you will. That's what I'm going to be doing. And each day it'll just be between maybe five and ten minutes, a little spiritual reflection, something just to um, give you some food to meditate on or a little... Um, a little consolation maybe in the midst of suffering or a little something to, sp to spur you on to greater heights in the spiritual life to make basically to make good use of the suffering which the Lord is giving us. So one truism in the spiritual life is everyone has to suffer but not everyone knows how to suffer well. So what I want to do is to the best of my ability which is limited because <laughs> uh, I'm still learning but uh, to help those who choose to join me to, to suffer well and to make good use of this time. So we're going to have that. So daily reflections. They'll be on this podcast, the same feed. So if you're subscribed to In Your Embrace, then uh, every day from now, basically, until the restrictions on masses are lifted, which might be a few weeks, might be a month, I mean, might, be, might be six months, who knows. But uh, I'm just going to keep on doing these daily reflections as, as best as I can. Um, from now until then. And the other thing that I'm discerning about doing, and I'm, I'm going to give it a try tomorrow night, is um, on Saturday nights to host online through Google Meet a contemplative Bible study on the Sunday Mass readings. And those will be the readings from the ordinary form of the Mass, because on Sundays I intend to uh, join in the live stream with my Archbishop from our cathedral. Uh, which, which will be an ordinary form Mass. Sunday is at 11 o'clock. So on Saturday nights, I will, uh, 
I'll host this online contemplative Bible study. It's called Song of Ascents. Song of Ascents, as in ascending, like going up a staircase. <laughs> and uh, just a word on the, on the choice of names. Um, this, is, this is a group I started holding at my old seminary at Mount Angel several years ago. And uh, I didn't really carry it over to St. Patrick's because, well, I kind of got busy and <laughs> just never really uh, tried to, to establish it there. But we had a good group of seminarians doing it at Mount Angel. The idea is, so the Song of Ascents is, is a term for a series of psalms in the, in the book of Psalms, about Psalm like 120 to 135, I think, or somewhere in there. These are the psalms that the Jews would pray devoutly as they were making their yearly pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. And it's as they got to the end, as they were going up the temple mount and ascending the stairs to go into the temple, they would recite these 15 or so psalms, which are therefore called the Song of Ascents, or in some translation they're called the Gradual Psalms. Gradual from the word gradus, which is a step. So as you're going up the steps, you pray these psalms. So the idea behind Song of Ascents is the Sunday Mass readings form a kind of a staircase or a ladder by which we can ascend to a vision of God. And um, each Sunday the, the readings are beautifully constructed they're put together by the church to paint an icon of, of God, uh, each one different from the last. And uh, there's basically infinite vistas of contemplation which we can enter into just by reflecting on the readings the church gives us. The Old Testament reading, the Psalm, the reading from the New Testament epistles, and the Gospel, along with the little antiphons the church gives for the entrance and communion. So put those texts together and they, you kind of layer them on top of each other like you're building a compound lens. And it, it uh, allows you to get a glimpse of the mystery of God from a certain angle, from a certain perspective, which is unique. Unique because of those readings that were chosen, and also unique to each person who comes to them. Because you come to them with your own perspective, and you bring everything that you have and everything that you are um, to the table, as it were. So it's really, it's really beautiful. It's a contemplative Bible study, by which I mean it's not really technical. You know, the point is not to uh, get bogged down in questions about, I don't know, like doing word studies or uh, analyzing the chiastic structure of this or that. Like, it's, it's, it's not going to be a technical, like, professional level, biblical studies kind of thing. Rather, it's a contemplative Bible study where the point is just to allow the Word of God to speak into the silence of your heart and to, and to let God be God, to let God speak to us and to share with one another the fruits of our contemplation. So every person who, who joins will bring something unique and valuable to the, the Bible study. And together we'll be able to discern better what God is saying to us during this time of, of trial, really. And... Um, and be able to share with one another uh, the, the words which he's inspiring in our own hearts. So that's the gist of what that is. If you choose to join, I'll give a little bit more instruction when we begin. But um, basically, that's it. And so I'm going to host that tomorrow night. This Tomorrow night is Saturday, March 21st. And I'm thinking it'll be 7 p.m. Um, and what I'll do is... If you, basically, if you follow me on Instagram, 
I will put up a link ahead of time, but it won't be through Instagram Live. If you don't have Instagram, don't worry. All you have to do is click a link. Anyone can click it. It'll be publicly accessible, whether you're on a mobile device or a PC or a Mac, whatever. You just click the link and it will add you to this Google Meet room where the Song of Ascent Bible study will take place. And uh, all you need is a Google account. So if you have Gmail or a YouTube account or something, then you're already set. It'll just ask for your Google account and password, and then you'll be added to the room and you can join in the Bible study. So um, I'll, I'll post the link up on Instagram. Um, the link will be up on my blog. It'll be in the show notes for this podcast. It'll be in our parish flock note. If you're a parishioner of my home parish in Roseburg, Oregon, then you're getting a daily email from the parish called a flock note. And if you get that email, then the link will be in the email also. <laughs> and if all else fails and you don't get it, but you know how to contact me, just contact me and I'll get you the link. So we'll do it that way. And uh, we'll, we'll do it this Saturday, tomorrow, 7 p.m. Ad experimentum, as they say in the Vatican, as an experiment. Just see how it goes. And, uh, but my plan is to continue this as well each Saturday night from now until the restrictions are lifted, you know. So, um, yeah, we'll give it a try. If you're interested, please consider joining through the means that I just described. Tomorrow night, 7 p.m. And so these are a little extra um, offering, <laughs> a little gift, because I've been discerning, you know, what can I do to try to... Um, to provide spiritual support to people. I mean, obviously, um, I want to do as Mother Teresa taught us. If you want to change the world, go home and love your family. And so I'm home. Uh, the Lord has called me home. I'm doing my best to love my family and to be a, a leaven of love here in their midst. But also, I feel called to do something, if I possibly can, for, um, for, the, for the church writ large for the greater community of God's faithful who are suffering so much right now. And um, as one of my professors, a late professor, told me just before we left, she said, this is really a time of great opportunity for Christ's faithful because all these, all these people in the world who are very complacent and who are uh, set in their ways and they're not used to having things shaken up, right? Well, everything has just gotten shaken up, you know, in a big way. Um, and so they're, and they're sitting at home. They're not able to work. All of their familiar distractions have been taken away from them. And uh, now, you know, they're faced with really with a decision. Um, are they going to sit at home and vegetate in front of Netflix for six weeks and withdraw from all social communion, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not just uh, maintain social distance, but socially isolate? And are they just going to withdraw further into themselves, into their addictions, into their vices, into their, you know, familiar comforts, which are slowly killing them? Or is this going to be an opportunity for Christ to break through to some of these hardened hearts? Will they, you know, who, who, who I mean, in the West, are, we're so complacent and we really, most of the time, don't have to think about death. Well, well, some of these people who are now coming face to face with the prospect of their own mortality, will their hearts finally be opened just a crack, just enough, that the gospel message 
the perennially, you know, ever ancient and ever new gospel of life in Jesus Christ may be able to get a foothold. And I think there's a good chance for some people, not for all, but there's a chance that some might yet be saved. And so I want to do what little I can to try to, uh, you know, be another voice out there in the public square online <laughs> as much as I can to, uh, to, um, to, to preach the gospel and to be available. So anyway, that's what I'm doing. Daily reflections, which you'll get just by subscribing to this podcast. You'll get them every day. You can throw them immediately into the trash or <laughs> listen as the mood takes you. And then the Saturday night, Song of Ascents, Contemplative Bible Study, Saturday night, 7 p.m., open to all who wish to join. Now, um, that's enough about my life for the time being. And um, I would like to, I guess, uh, share a couple thoughts with you about Julius Caesar. All the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely play it. So on my long drive home over the course of two days from, uh, from St. Patrick's to Roseburg, I made a little bit of progress listening to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. I got an unabridged audio production done by the Folger Shakespeare Library. And uh, I really recommend, I recommend that series. You know, they've done a whole bunch of audio dramas, fully dramatized, unabridged, of Shakespeare's more popular plays. Not everything is on there. But you can get kind of the greatest hits, like um, Macbeth, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, Richard III, which we just, I wish I'd known about this a week ago. <laughs> Richard III is on there, and Julius Caesar is on there, as well as a, a, probably a number of others. But that's the one that we're going through right now for Ian Desher's Shakespeare 2020 project. So as I was driving home, I, was, I made some good progress listening to Julius Caesar. I had to kind of do it this way because... Um, with all the craziness unfolding over the earlier part of this week <laughs> and over the weekend, I had not even cracked the play open yet by the time we all had to go home, you know? And then I was, it was kind of a mad dash of activity, throwing stuff into my boxes and <laughs> loading up the car, blah, 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 blah. So it was uh, one day before we were supposed to have finished reading the play, and I was just starting it. And so I, I had to download this audio thing as a... <laughs> a matter of necessity. But that being said, I really enjoyed it. Now, it is a little bit difficult at times to keep track of who is speaking, because of course, with a play, you, you want to be able to see what's going on. It's basically like watching a play with your eyes closed. You know, <laughs> they've got professional Shakespearean actors. Um, there's wonderful sound effects, and it's so professionally done. Very, very well done. But it is a drawback. You can't see what's going on. So occasionally, it's a little unclear who is speaking to whom, or you can get a little bit lost that way. Um, I have not finished the play yet. I've got to get caught up. Hopefully tomorrow I'll, I'll finish it up and then got to move on to Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is the next one I think we were supposed to start today. So I'm going to get back up to speed <laughs> pretty quickly as, if I can. But um, so I, I'm about, about maybe two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through Julius Caesar after listening to it on my drive. Um, what's most striking about this play, to me, in light of what's going on right now, is the focus on discerning the signs, discerning the, the portents, <laughs> these uh, miraculous and strange events which are happening in Rome, which foreshadow the betrayal and the murder of Julius Caesar. 
And uh, of course, there's so much that could be said about this play. I mean, we could spend weeks talking about Julius Caesar. I mean, so many famous lines from Shakespeare come from this play, so many iconic moments. It's incredible to me, just like with Richard III, that I have not read this before, <laughs> because I feel like I already know it, because it's so prevalent in our culture, and so many things which we encounter in this play are floating out there in the cultural uh, zeitgeist. Even now, it's incredible. Shakespeare wrote this play centuries ago, um, and it, it's still so uh, influential on our whole cultural life. Anyway, but what I want to focus on is this whole theme of signs, reading the signs of the times. <laughs> and there's this litany that happens early in the play where we hear about all the strange things going on in Rome. There's a lioness who has given birth to all of her cubs in the, in the streets of the city. There are, uh, you know, there's like uh, flocks of, of, of crows doing mys mysterious and unusual things. And I, I don't remember. I don't remember all the different portents, but there are numerous things going on. And uh, so Julius Caesar's wife, Calpurnia, is a very superstitious, we could say, kind of a, a woman, I guess. Well, maybe to put it more charitably, you could say that she's very attuned to these signs. and She's paying a lot of attention to them. And so she has a, a soothsayer, um, a fortune teller, perform the Roman practice of divination, where they cut open an animal and uh, try to read the future in its entrails, which is very bizarre, this pagan practice. And uh, the animal that she has cut open, she wants to read Caesar's future because she's worried. She thinks all these portents have something to do with his future and they're, they're uh, an ill omen for him. So she has this diviner cut open an animal to figure out what's going to happen to her husband, Caesar. And uh, she reasons, you know, reasonably enough that uh, the universe does not foretell the death of a, a criminal on the streets. But if an emperor is to die, then there will be signs in the heavens and on earth to show what is to come. So when the diviner cuts open this animal, whatever it is, I don't remember, he cuts it open, he discovers it has no heart. So he turns to Calpurnia and says, what a terrible omen this is, and that Caesar is in grave danger. He must not leave his home. And so she beseeches him. She falls to her knees and she's begging him, don't leave, don't leave home. Don't go to the Senate today. Well, what she doesn't know, and what Caesar doesn't know, is that there is in fact this whole conspiracy against him. And all these senators and advisors who are putting on a kind face, pretending to be his friends, I mean, really, his friends, not even just his supporters, but they're pretending to be his, his bosom friends. They're all conspiring together to murder him and uh, to usurp his throne and to take control of Rome for their own faction. And so a number of members of this conspiracy come to Caesar's home and they tell him, well, the Senate, in fact, uh, just today, they were going to vote and, and offer you the imperial crown, you know. And so Caesar, who had been swayed by his wife's words to stay home, turns on her in anger and says, Oh, how foolish all your womanly concerns look now. See, you thought today is a day of ill omen, but my friends tell me it's a day of, of the greatest hope when I'm going to be crowned as Rome's emperor. And so they take him to the Senate. And there's this interesting scene where Caesar is giving judgment for a man who's begging for mercy. And Caesar just gives him strict justice. He says, you know, he compares himself to the North Star, which is this beautiful comparison 
cold, um, but, but, but very beautiful in its way, where you're seeing all the stars in heaven change on their, on their courses, you know, and they go through their rotation, but the one star alone remains constant, the North Star. It remains stable in the firmament. And likewise, I, Caesar, well, I am made like the North Star to remain ever constant and stable. If I could be swayed by words, your words would surely sway me. But I cannot. I must remain firm. And so he won't uh, give a judgment of mercy to this man who came begging for, for, I think, for his own brother to be released from exile. He won't be budged. And thereupon, all the conspirators lay on him and stab him with knives, including famously his uh, best friend, Brutus. So Caesar utters his last words, et tu Brute, and then, and then dies very dramatically. And so then the play continues to unfold, with, but, but we won't get into that because I'm still going through it as we speak. So we'll just focus on this first part and especially on the signs and the reactions to the signs. You know, Calpurnia, in a way, is... I, I, let me just preface this by saying I think everyone's reaction to the signs in this play is in some way disordered. <laughs> but uh, Calpurnia, I mean, her reaction to, to the, the signs and the ill omens is like the stereotypical, the prototypical model of one who is, um, who is over-influenced and who panics at the first sign of, of, of trouble, you know. And uh, we have people like this in our own day, even among Christ's faithful. People who try to look for signs, who are always looking to see what's going to happen next. And um, they put their trust in, sometimes in, even in pagan things like astrology and horoscopes and things like this. It's very common among, uh, especially among Hispanic cultures, I have found that um, people will be very faithful Catholics who go to Mass on Sundays. But in a time of distress, they will go to the fortune teller and they go to find out, okay, what's going to happen next? Am I going to lose my job? What should I do? And it shows, shows in some way the limits of their faith because uh, Christ tells us very clearly, you know, when the disciples asked him about the day and the hour of his second coming to judge the earth, he told them, the Father alone knows the day and the hour. Uh, no sign will be given you but the sign of Jonah famously. What's the sign of Jonah? Repent. The same words as Christ began his ministry. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the sign that, that we ought to look for is in, in every moment is the same sign which Jonah gave and which Christ gave. To repent. That is to say, turn from your evil and begin to do good. <laughs> turn away from sin. Turn toward virtue. Turn away from your addictions and turn toward the Redeemer, the one who can truly set us free from evil. Turn away from doing evil, begin to do good. Turn away from the world and from the prince of this world and toward Christ, the King of glory. So the sign of Jonah is what we ought to be looking for, but many people are constantly looking for signs. Now, on the other hand, I will say this. The Second Vatican Council taught us uh, something about the need to discern the signs of the times. And this is a little bit different than, well certainly it's, 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 it belongs to a whole different spirit mentality than the spirit that leads one to consult a fortune teller <laughs> to try to use practices of divination in order to foretell what's going to happen next. Reading the signs of the times is rather about trying to understand 
what it is God is doing at this present moment. It's not trying to gain some kind of advantage by looking to the future. It's not done out of a spirit of fear of what might happen next. Rather, it's done out of, like St. Augustine famously said about theology, he said theology is uh, fide squerens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. And likewise, this spirit which seeks to discern the signs of the times is a, is a spirit of faith which is seeking understanding of what it is exactly that God is doing in these times and at this place. And so this spirit uh, looks for signs, not, uh, not in the entrails of animals or in the movements of the stars to see what's going to come next or in you know, uh, any of those kind of practices but rather it looks at what is actually occurring and tries to view them through the lens of faith and from the perspective of God to say what is it that God is doing and <laughs> what is it that God wants to bring about. It's a spirit of faith because it recognizes that everything which is occurring is occurring because of God's providence. Either God is positively willing it, that is to say, God has decreed that it be so, or else we in Catholic theology draw this distinction to good effect, I think. Or else God is permissively willing it, which is to say, he doesn't positively want it with his divine will, but he is permitting it in, in view of some greater good he wants to bring about as a result. So we know by faith that everything which happens is either a result of God's positive will or his permissive will. In either case, it's being guided by his providence which is to say God's will is, is involved. <laughs> Nothing escapes his notice. Not even the flight of a sparrow, you know, escapes the notice of God. Far less the fate of his own beloved children. I mean, he is intimately involved. So we know that by faith. Therefore, we seek to understand what is it God is doing <laughs> and what is the good he wants to bring about as a result of whatever evil we might be suffering at this moment. And this this is a spirit which all Christians, I think, ought to cultivate because it's a, spirit of, it's a spirit of faith, yes. It's also a spirit, however, of, well, of, of what St. Ignatius and his sons, the Jesuits, call discernment, the spirit of discernment. It's especially needed in times of crisis like today. And so, uh, you know, the, many of the Roman people were uh, to a, a greater or lesser extent exercising a kind of a spirit of discernment as they're looking at these miraculous things going on in the streets. Um, the lioness giving birth to her cubs in the middle of the city and the, the flights of crows and whatever. They're not trying to use practices of divination, but they're seeing what's going on and they're trying to discern what is it that the gods, for the Romans, the gods are, are doing? What is it that the gods will? For us Christians, our discernment has a different character because we know who God is. He's our Father and He loves us. But anyway, the spirit that we ought to cultivate is looking at the signs of the times and prayerfully in our contemplation um, by meditating on the Word of God, Holy Scripture, um, by remaining close to His heart and asking Him in silence, by, by doing these things in other words, that we ought to try to, to discern and to consider what is it God wants to bring about. So those are the two spirits. Um, we, could, we could very simply in shorthand distinguish them this way. There's a, the spirit of fear, 
uh, goes, runs to fortune tellers and tries to discern what's going to happen next. But the spirit of faith simply looks to God and tries to discern what is it he is doing here and now. If you uh, choose to partake in my Song of Ascent Bible study tomorrow night, we might get into this a little bit more, considering what are the signs of the times at, in real life at this moment, like that reveal to us what is God's will, what's his intention, what's he doing. Because I was speaking with a priest friend just two nights ago as I was driving. I stayed over with him in Northern California. And uh, we got into it a little bit, talking about you know, everything that's been going on in the world and what does it mean for us as Christians and as priests, or, or just one priest anyway and one in training. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, he said, for me, um, it all started when Notre Dame burned last year. And it kind of gave me pause because I was like, wow, so much has happened. I mean, I almost forgot that that had happened. But he said it was after Notre Dame uh, burned down in the view of weeping, of, of the whole world grieving over Notre Dame in flames, that then all these scandals in the church began to break. And then um, we just had, you know, then we had a, had a, a crisis of leadership and bishops pitted against bishops. And there's been division and becoming clearer by the day in the ranks of the clergy and the hierarchy. Now we have this global pandemic, the likes of which has not been seen in the lifetime of anyone living and probably in many generations. And so I won't get into the weeds, as it were, of what we were discussing and our conclusions and things like that, because that's a matter of, of, uh, of faith-seeking understanding, right? Of each one's private discernment and, and prudential judgment. But um, I will say, you know, I mean, God is undoubtedly active here and now, just as he is at all moments. He remains close to us, and it's up to us to pay close attention to him, both in his exterior movements out in the world, what he does, what he allows, and in the subtle movements of our own heart in our prayer, to try to discern what is it God's doing, what is it he wants to bring about, and therefore, what is it he wills for me to do, because I'm on his team. What he wants, I want. So I want to bring that about as well. That's about all I have for you from Julius Caesar. I apologize. I know it was more about theology than it was really about literature. But, uh, well, as I said, these are uncertain times. And my, my heart is really more with theology than with Shakespeare right now. And I haven't finished the play. But hopefully by next week I'll have some more insights for you, more literary in nature, from two gentlemen of Verona. Now, in the last moments of this podcast, I want to share with you a little bit about a great, great saint, a titan of the church, who we celebrate tomorrow. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? Well, a saint means one who is holy. Tomorrow, March 21st, in the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite, the traditional Roman calendar, is the feast of none other than Saint Benedict of Norcia. Saint Benedict is a saint who is very dear to my own heart. I was blessed to study for four years at a college seminary run by Benedictine monks here in Oregon, Mount Angel Abbey, um, under the tutelage of the good monks of that monastery. Also in Rome last summer, when I went on the Rome experience, this pilgrimage, I was blessed to go to the place where St. Benedict was born, 
the town of Norcia, which is in uh, the beautiful garden country of Umbria, just an hour or two northeast, I believe, from Rome. And I was also privileged enough to visit the Abbey of Monte Cassino, the uh, abbey which St. Benedict founded, which became the mother house of the entire, it's not really an order, but we could, for the sake of uh, ease and simplicity, we can say the mother house of the Benedictine order, which spread throughout the whole world. St. Benedict was the father of a, a quiet and prayerful revolution which shook the world. And it began with founding Monte Cassino. And his spiritual sons went throughout all of Europe, founding monasteries, basically single-handedly preserved Western culture throughout the Middle Ages. The great abbeys and monasteries of Europe became the centers of learning and of culture, as well as centers of prayer and devotion and hospitality to pilgrims, where the great texts of ancient Greece and Rome and all of Western culture really, honestly, were preserved, where Gregorian chant was studiously maintained, uh, the church's treasury of sacred music, where the sacred liturgy was celebrated and developed. And, uh, you know, Pope Gregory the Great, who we commemorated recently, he was a Benedictine monk. He came out of the Benedictine system. It is for him that Gregorian chant is named. And to him, really, that we owe so much about the structure and, and, uh, and the, the life of the church, even up until the modern day. So St. Benedict, his influence in the church cannot be overstated. And I said it's a quiet and a prayerful revolution, which, uh, and it might be a, not quite right to call it a revolution per se, I don't know, but um, by founding Monte Cassino Abbey, he founded a whole new way of religious life in the church. Up until then, basically what you had were hermits, like the, the great desert fathers, you know, who fled the world to go seek a life of greater recollection and, and prayer and solitude. And St. Benedict began that way as well. He was the son of a noble family in Norcia, which is, which is a wealthy town at that time. It was, uh, he belonged to an aristocratic family. They sent him to Rome to go study at the best schools, to go study rhetoric. And he was appalled when he was there to see the dissolute lifestyle of his fellow students. These young men in the schools, they were basically learning the arts of rhetoric um, so that they could seduce young women and go out and become, uh, you know, lawyers for criminals and, <laughs> and uh, well, and, and use, their, use their talents and their education for ill-gotten gains and for notoriety. And so he was appalled by their lifestyle and by their values. He left Rome um, in distress, fled the city into the hills, and there he, he, he dwelt in a cave called Subiaco, and he became a hermit. And his whole purpose was to seek God above all else. It's one of the great Benedictine mottos. Um, Nihil ante Deum preponere. Put not anything before God or in the place of God. So St. Benedict uh, is, is the great example for all Benedictines and the whole church of <laughs> how to live that out in a radical way. He went to live as a hermit. But what began to happen is... Uh, other other uh, hermits and also those who desired to live an eremitical life heard about him, and he he was reasonably well known from his studies. He was a talented orator, so people came and sought him out, and uh, they wanted to know the hope that was within him and why he was living this way of life, and they sought for him to give them a rule 
so that they also could live a way of life that was radical, following Christ with everything they had and all that they were. He warned them that his way of life would be too radical for them, but they persisted and so he relented. And He wrote a rule, an initial rule which has been lost to time. Sure enough, though, it was too strict, too austere. And in fact, those early monks tried to poison him because they were so fed up with his rigidity. And so there's this great story about they put poison in his cup, but when St. Benedict blessed the meal, the cup shattered in his hands. And uh, so God preserved him, you know, from the, the craftiness of his, <laughs> of his monks who were conspiring against him. Uh, sort of like echoes maybe in a, in a distant way of Julius Caesar's story there, huh? Uh, and I'm just reminded of something else I wanted to say about Julius Caesar, which I guess I'll just stick in here. But there's, there's such, a, there's such a, an interesting, um, not exactly a parallel, but you could say the story of Caesar and Brutus rhymes with the great story of Jesus and Judas. Um, I'm just thinking of how in the, the Synoptic Gospels, there's this line where Jesus is before Pilate and Pilate's wife comes to him and says, have nothing to do with this honest man because I suffered much in a dream today because of him. And it, it's just, it reminds me a lot of how Calpurnia is trying to dissuade Caesar from going out. And, you know, it's like, it's, all, it's, it's the wives in both cases who are kind of receptive and trying to dissuade their husbands from their peril. And then also... Um, you know, Judas famously, infamously betrays Jesus with a kiss, a kiss of friendship. It's the, it's the sign, if you will, the, the great, the great, one of the greatest signs we have of friendship. And Judas twists it so that uh, this sign of friendship becomes the signal by which Jesus' enemies know who he is so they can arrest him. And likewise, Brutus puts on this face of friendship, being Caesar's most bosom friend, when all along, he is kind of the, uh, the uh, ringleader, or at least kind of the figurehead of the conspiratorial faction. So there's, there's these themes running through the, the, the gospel, which is, as C.S. Lewis said, the one true myth, and through Julius Caesar's story of, on the one hand, um, signs being interpreted or misinterpreted or not interpreted <laughs> or <laughs> interpreted wrongly out of fear. And on the other hand, signs, human signs, being misused, being twisted, being uh, used for one's own benefit, used against those who are trusting enough to take them at face value. This is part of what St. Benedict found to be so distasteful amongst his fellow students and colleagues in Rome. They were learning the arts of rhetoric just so they could use uh, tricks of language and persuasion for their own selfish purposes and for their own gain. And uh, also in these early monks, just to bring it all the way back full circle, these early monks gave St. Benedict a sign of friendship to share a common cup when in reality they had poisoned it and they intended by it to do him harm. But God preserved him. St. Benedict gave the blessing, the cup shattered. All those first order of monks then dispersed. They (laughs) went their separate ways. They couldn't. They couldn't handle it, they couldn't handle the life. But later on, St. Benedict founded um, a number of other very small monasteries in the hills. He gave them a kind of a rule and they were able to follow it. Each one had no more than, I think, 12 monks. 
And so basically they were kind of a hybrid between monasteries as we know them now and the early hermitages. It reminds me of St. Teresa's idea when she founded the Discalced Carmelites. She wanted each house of sisters to have no more than 13 nuns. Any more than that, and she decreed that that house had to then found a new daughter house. She wanted the community small. But St. Benedict's great revolution came because when, when he had the idea to uh, combine all these different houses into one great abbey, Monte Cassino. And he gave them a very balanced and beautiful rule, the regula, the rule of St. Benedict, which, uh, we, it's amazing. We still have this rule today, and uh, it's followed in different degrees of interpretation and, 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 uh, and observance by different monasteries. But nevertheless, all Benedictines today receive this rule as their heritage. And uh, it's very balanced, it's very pastoral, uh, it's uh, about as far as you can get from that initial, you know, rigid, strict rule that those first monks rebelled against. The rule of St. Benedict is remarkable for how um, mindful it is for the weakness of each of the members of the community. And it, 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 uh, it maintains this beautiful, uh, very difficult balance between the perfect and the possible. <laughs> what would be ideal? and what is really possible in a community of weak and fallen men. And by writing this beautiful rule, as well as by his own example of sanctity and his own zeal, Benedict became the father of the whole monastic movement, which uh, preserved Western culture, as I've said, throughout the Middle Ages, and impelled it, uh, passed it on as, as our heritage. We have him to thank, even in our present day, for the fact that we have, you know, um, Plato and Socrates, and Virgil, mm, all the great fathers of Greek and Roman culture, Gregorian chant, and, and all of these treasures out of the past, which are made present to us now in the life of the church and in broader culture. So, St. Benedict, really a wonderful saint, and you know, it's very timely that we celebrate him tomorrow in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic and the orders to shelter in place <laughs> because St. Benedict, if anyone was ever the patron of sheltering in place, man, it would be the guy who ran out of Rome to seek shelter in a cave in the hills of Italy in order to encounter God. Benedictine monks are famously known for sheltering in place by choice, in fact, by vocation. The Benedictine vocation is one to a certain place, you know, in a way similar to the vocation of a diocesan priest, actually, now that I think of it. But the diocesan priest is called to serve the people of God in a large geographical area, like all of Western Oregon, for example. And Benedictine monk has a different calling to remain in one place, to be still, and to know that God is God. He commits himself to, for example, the monks of Mount Angel, to remain on this one hilltop, this holy hill, as they love to say, and to, in this place, by living out many years and decades here, witnessing the seasons change hundreds and hundreds of times, seeing monks before them grow old and die, and young monks come after them and rise through the ranks, generations of students graduate and go on into the world, and so on, basically remaining still while the world continues, which is a difficult discipline, but remaining in one place, letting God be God, 
and being attentive to what he's doing, discerning the signs of the times and of the moment. By the faithful practice of praying the liturgy day in and day out and singing the chant of the church, practicing Lexio Divina basically is a contemplative Bible study. By these practices, the Benedictine monks become very closely aligned to the heart and to the will of God. And so their whole purpose, the whole purpose of the monastic life, as I understand it, is to become, uh, to become another Christ, to be molded into his likeness by fidelity to the rule and the daily discipline of monastic living. So on the one hand, it can seem to the world like utter insanity. <laughs> These men, they decide to give up everything the world has to offer, to spend their whole lives living in one place under an austere and difficult rule. Well, I mean a balanced rule. But uh, from the world's perspective, which is inclined to self-indulgence, really a difficult, difficult way of life. How can they do this? Well, that's one perspective. <laughs> and that's one perspective we can have toward the orders of sheltering in place, that it's a, an impingement on our freedom. But for the Benedictine monk, the cloister is a cloister of love. The cloister walls around the monastery are not there to keep him in. They're to keep the world out to create a space of silence where he can encounter God, where he can simply be still and let God be God. And so I invite you and I invite myself to see these, this time of sheltering in place and <laughs> social distance and all the rest, not primarily as a burden. Yes, it is burdensome in many ways, and it imposes difficult restrictions on our normal life, which we have to be creative to find a way around, you know. But to see this really as a gift and as a vocation, I mean, a vocation in a, a limited and a temporary sense, pray God, but as a, as, as a vocation, and maybe better said this way, as an, as an invitation from God to draw near to Him and to let our quarantines become cloisters of love and places of encounter with the God who we know loves us and in whom we can have great confidence now and unto the ages of ages. For Christ is good and He loves mankind. May God bless you, may He protect you from all evil, and may He bring you to everlasting life. Amen.